Well, welcome everyone. My name's Wesley from Business Blessings and today we're launching a new podcast called Sacrificial Succession based on the work of Paul Ratray. So welcome, Paul, to this new podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Wes. As as I read through the materials and stuff, I'm so excited for this uh, because it's based on your practical experience of working in various parts around the world. So, Paul, do you want to introduce yourself so people get to know who you are and and then we can talk a bit about the heart behind this. Sure, sure. Um, maybe you can do the same in a minute, Wes. Yes. Because um, uh, we've only just gotten to know each other and I thought, um, you know, the work that you did on that entrepreneur's event was fantastic. So, um, well, thank you. Uh, my name's Paul Rattray. Um, I spent uh, most of my formative years uh, on the island of Borneo. Um growing up there as a children of uh, as a child of missionary parents. Um, and so I learned to hunt and fish from the local Dayak people um, and loved every minute of it. And also was exposed to a lot of different cultures, which was very formative, I think, in terms of the lot of, a lot of the work I've done. And I had some great mentors, some great tribal um, elders, people who for the most part couldn't read or write or could only read and write at a basic level. And yet they taught me things about the jungle and about life um, that I've been able to take with me uh, into the uh, work that I've done since then. So I'm very thankful for that, very blessed by that. Um, I then came back to Australia went to university, was able to get three degrees, uh, primarily in the education field, um, and then was uh, really blessed to be given the opportunity of joining an organisation called CV or Christian Vision. And really there, I think, had the opportunity to outwork a lot of the things that I'd learned before that. I also had my own company that I set up uh, prior to that and did a lot of consultancy work with uh, executive orientation for companies operating in Asia Pacific, especially Indonesia. Um, Again, in the education and training uh, area. And so a lot of what I'd learned there and at university, I was able to apply to the project work that I did at CV and uh, eventually we started to look at doing missions projects uh, on the ground. We had been doing projects like that called impact to nation projects but these were very specifically focused projects uh, working with local indigenous uh, pioneering people to uh, really look at impacting nations that were in conflict or crisis. And so a lot of what I'd learned through all those years, um, and I'm sure you've seen the same as you look back, um, that uh, the things that we perhaps have learned that we never thought we'd use. um, Yeah, the amazing thing is that um, God can use those experiences, good and bad, or positive and negative, uh, to really contribute to uh, our calling 
and what we are um, what we're, we're we're asked to do. So for me, uh, I'm I'm very honoured uh, to have been given the opportunity to really have been able to play a part with people that I consider to be the real heroes in the story. Yeah, so that's me, Wes. That's great, Paul. I, I would agree with you that God uses everything in our lives and and he seems to weave the good and the bad together and use them for his purposes, as it talks about in Genesis. Well, for those to give you a bit of my background, um, been raised in a Christian family, uh, born and bred in Brisbane, so still here, although I have travelled, I think, 35 different nations, although we can't do that at this point in time. Uh, so uh, I am trained as an accountant and have worked in both for-profit and not-for-profit areas. My passion, uh, we have a company called Business Blessings, is to connect people with God and others through profound strategies that help you to glorify God and grow your business supernaturally. And I think that's one of the reasons that has drawn me to doing this uh, series with you, Paul, is because as I've read through uh, what you, you've put together, but also seen both in Christian ministry and uh, in non-Christian businesses uh, and organizations, the whole area of succession is really not handled very well at all. And um, I think I've, I've sat on 11 different boards in my lifetime so far. Um, three of those organizations have closed down. So I don't know whether that was my fault <laughs> or not. Um, others have transitioned well and others it's been a debacle. And, you know, I look back and think, oh man, if I only known some of these things now, but, but that's, but that's part of the grace of God as well too. He uses those things to teach us to move forward as well. So Paul, what's your heart? Like obviously God's taking you on a journey with sacrificial succession and what you've put together here. Do you want to explain kind of, I guess, some of the more specific background as to how your writings have come about and your teachings have come about here? Yeah. I think, as I said to you, when we first met, I felt compelled to write this down, uh, not necessarily because I was the best writer or um, necessarily the clearest thinker, but uh, when you feel compelled by God to do something, you do it. And so for me, it was a matter of being willing to do it even though, you know, I thought, why me? There's plenty of other people who perhaps are, you know, better at this or better at that, have more of this or more of that. Um, but I, for me, this was just fulfilling what was on my heart and to put it out there. And um, yeah. And, and secondly, because I was so inspired by the people that I worked with in the field who were the ones who really put themselves and their lives on the line and put a lot of these principles into practice personally. And in seeing the um, success that we had in some really difficult places, just encouraged me to tell their stories because I felt their stories were worthy to tell. 
Yeah. So this was a huge paradigm shift for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a few people have said that. Um, and so the biggest paradigm shift would be, I think, for me, because in a sense, I wouldn't have written it if, it, if my paradigm hadn't have been changed. Uh, but it was. And as I, as I said, in particular, it was in looking and seeing my colleagues who put some of these principles into practice in the field that really inspired me and encouraged me in my own journey through this. And it's a continuing one, by the way. It's not one that, you know, well, I've achieved this. Yes. And now I'm teaching everyone else. No, I'm going through this and I need to learn to do better in this area. And I think that's one of the things about leadership is it's a constant change. It's a, it's a constant growing, a constant learning, a constant reflecting on what's happened and, and going back to God and say, God, what do I do in this situation? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and literally hundreds of versions, I'd say. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, Paul, at the, at the centre of this is you're, we're making a shift away from being leader-focused to successor-centric. Now, that's, that's a huge change because pretty much every organisation I've worked in or been involved in, it's all been about the leader and not about succession. Yeah, and I don't think that we necessarily do that intentionally. I mean, some do, um, but, you know, many of us have been, uh, you know, inspired or encouraged by thinking about servant leadership. And, you know, there's various views and writings on that. Um, but even servant leadership doesn't really provide a successor-centric view of um, the world. And so I would say that, you know, I arrived at that challenge because of a crisis and I doubt if we had not been faced with a crisis that I would have been uh, you know really searching and crying out for something else I would have used the skills that I had you know um, having been to university studied a lot of these things um, as well as run my own projects previously quite successfully uh, in the Asia Pacific, in particular, China, Indonesia, um, I would have used that, you know, that quiver of skills to uh, do what I thought. And that's pretty much how I was doing things, praying, yes, but it's when I was, we were, we as an organization were faced with a crisis that we didn't have an answer for. That was when I said to the Lord, I don't know what to do here. Um, I, you know, this is a dead end for us unless there's something dramatic changes. And that's generally the time when God works. <laughs> he gets us to the end of ourselves and says, okay, you ready to listen to me now? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then go for them. Well, Paul, do you want to explain a bit about the yeah. project? So, yeah, so the background to this? Yeah. So for us, um, as I shared a little bit earlier, we uh, run um, projects that are called Impact a Nation projects. And they're specifically aimed 
at nations and countries at specific times of opportunity. And by opportunity, um, to quote our founder, Lord uh, Robert Edmiston, that's often within crisis is where opportunities arise. And, you know, he's an entrepreneur with an accounting background. Um, there was a few similarities there, Wes. Yes. <laughs> um, and that is that where crisis is occurring, especially where people are suffering, that's where God, God's heart is. He, he wants those people to be touched and impacted. And so for us, that's actually an opportunity for us to be used by God. And so that's been the case around the world in many places, Africa, Latin America, Asia Pacific. In this particular case, it was in one of the world's newest nations, and that's East Timor, literally on our doorstep, where uh, more than a third of the people had been uh, killed in a civil war and genocidal uh, conflict. And so we were there. We were called to impact that nation. We had been there since uh, their uh, independence. And um, the challenge that we faced was that the country's um, president had personally and on the record publicly threatened to expel the 100 foreign workers that we had working in the country at the time. And so we were faced with a crisis of saying to ourselves and to the people that we'd led to Christ and the churches that we'd build up and the businesses that we had established. Um, if all of our workers were sent home tomorrow, we would have nobody to take over. And at the time, we had two potentials who were not even established as leaders. So it was an absolute crisis where we realized that we had nowhere to go with what was essentially the largest um, missionary outreach in the country at the time by a long shot. Um, and this was the crisis that we faced. So where did you start, Paul? So you did some research? Well, where I started was really just to go back initially to some of the research that I'd done for my doctorate and for my university um, degree. I was also a lecturer and convener at Griffith University in their languages and applied linguistics area. So I like to research and I like languages and I like looking at, you know, how things worked. Um, so I just wanted to understand, well, how does the business world as a rule see um, succession planning? And most of what I found, found was relatively prescribed as the sort of thing that you might um, right into a quality management system and it would be affected if needed. Uh, on the other side, tended to be sort of fairly knee-jerk um, 
you know, people talking about a leadership pipeline where people potentially uh, of potential are being prepared, but not necessarily with the objective of making them successors. But you have a pool of people that you could potentially draw on, or more commonly, uh, you look at bringing people in from outside, which in our case wasn't an option. On the other side, uh, servant leadership appealed to me, especially some of the writings of Robert uh, Greenleaf, uh, you know, a Quaker who, who's quite well known uh, for writing about servant leadership. Others have written about servantship. But again, in terms of researching it for the crisis that we faced, the critique for me was that there was no succession model. You know, a servant leader could serve for the rest of their lives as a servant leader. And that's wonderful, but it doesn't answer the question of what happens when you're faced with a crisis like we were faced with. And so I was reading a passage in the Bible and I was praying and I was saying, Lord, I don't know what to do here. Um, and I was reading this passage. I'd read it many times before, I guess, but it had never jumped out at me. And that's the parable of the vineyard workers in Matthew chapter 20, where uh, the landowner goes out and gets workers who come early in the morning and, and then uh, keep on coming in uh, through, that, through the day. Um, and at the end of it, he asks the manager to pay each of those workers the same amount and he starts with those who's, who were the ones who came last. And that seems crazy. And they thought it was crazy. And for me, that was an epiphany. It was an aha moment. It was like, I know what we have to do. We have to put the last, which are our successors, first. And we have to do it intentionally and it has to become the primary focus of our project until we get that part of the job done. And so that passage really jumped out at me um, because it reminded me of the importance of preparing people as successors, but not just preparing them, but actually handing over leadership and spending time with those people to help continue to guide them as they uh, go through that new process of being leaders. And for us, again, we were dealing with people who were traumatized, brutalized. It, they were first generation Christians, believers. Um, when we would first visit them and we would have meetings people would just break down and weep on the floor because of the trauma and the tragedy that they'd faced. And so understandably, our foreign workers had very little faith that these traumatized people, most of who were very poorly educated at best, could possibly lead a project as large and as complex as this. And that's exactly what they said to me when I shared this passage with them. In fact, our country leader at the time, he just said, it's impossible. 
um, absolutely impossible that this could possibly be done. And I said, I don't believe we have any other option. And so I talked the, this through with our leadership to make sure that I had their blessing. And they said, yep, uh, go for it. And so we did what we did. And amazingly, and it's a miracle, but in three years, we basically had enough successes prepared to replace all of the foreign workers at that point, they were about down to 50 people. Um, we were able to replace all of them. And, and right to this day, that project is still being run by local people, 100%, just about, except for a, a local radio station that we've handed over to a partner who continues to help. Um, but for us, that was just, a, it, it was a miracle. And that's exactly what our country leader said at our first graduation. He said, brother, he had tears in his eyes. He said, it's a miracle. He said, I would never have thought that this could possibly happen, but it did. Well, it's, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing testimony. And it's very at odds with other leadership uh, theories and practices that are out there but it works and, and it continues on. And I, I often think about like people who are starting up an organization or growing an organization, it's more about how can the people serve me as a leader rather than how I can serve my successes. And even having the thought of succession right from the start, I mean, you guys were forced into it because you could have lost all your work in that whole country. So you kind of your hand was forced a bit where our hands are not forced. We tend to focus on ourselves rather than others, but it's, it's a huge change in thinking. Huh, absolutely. <laughs> First in May. <laughs> yeah. And it always has to start with us as well. Um, one of the things that I, I um, that really stood out to me is the quote in the paper by John L. Williams, Confucius is a, Mencius and the notion of true succession um, saying that uh, is observed that only when a successor is directly influenced by their predecessor can a transition be called a true transition, true succession, sorry. And like the more I've been thinking about that, often, often when it comes to succession, we cut the leader off and move them out of the position and then the new leader comes in and has the freedom to do whatever he or she would like to do. But it, that doesn't always work. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But so, so it's a fascinating statement that there's true succession is when there, there is some direct influence by the predecessor. Yeah, it's interesting because it's by only, I mean, it's only a philosophical paper uh, he's a philosopher and he's writing a philosophy, you know, a, a philosophy of, of leadership in a sense. Um, and he's looking at, uh, you know, Confucius and Mencius were two uh, great uh, Chinese um, philosophers uh, who, who had a great deal of wisdom. And whether one was, uh, uh, whether Mencius was directly influenced by Confucius or not is, 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 is his you know, 
it's his treatise he's sort of discussing that philosophically but you're right for me what that's the same thing jumped out at me as well is that it's to directly influence um and it's true that uh it doesn't work in all cases because if you have a bad leader yes you want to get rid of them and that's understandable uh but i think that there are many cases when the way that uh, transitions are run. I wouldn't necessarily call them successions, but the way transitions are run is that essentially you get someone else in once you've got the other person out. Um, and like I said, if it's because there is bad stuff going on or it's, you know, the person is becoming a malign influence, yes, uh, that's necessary. But oftentimes, I believe it's because it's been left too long. That person could have played a much more positive role if they had been preparing a successor earlier on and spent time helping that person, guiding that person, leading from behind, rather than, in a sense, simply being cut off because they had taken too long and everybody was, you know, more than ready for them to be gone. (laughs) Um, And again, you know, the inspiration for me is, believe it or not, the Trinity. Yes. Um, Because, you know, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Um, I say nothing that the Father hasn't said to me. Um, I must return to the Father because when I do, you will go and do greater things than me. But I'm not leaving you as orphans. These are all statements that in practical terms suggest continuity. Jesus was sent by the Father. You know, we as leaders, we need to have the authority of a leadership over us. This is not doing things on our own. And if you look at that passage in Matthew chapter 20, it's very interesting, a little passage there perhaps that we sometimes overlook. The sons of Zebedee, or in in some of the versions, the mother, uh, which is a very Eastern thing, you know, mum comes to talk. Um, It's very interesting because Jesus asks the brothers, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they say very proactively yes we can it's interesting that jesus doesn't say no you can't because in other cases he says to peter you know get behind me he doesn't say no you can't he says yes you can and you will but who whoever sits on my uh, right hand or my left that's up to the father that's up to my father, the ones who are in authority. So these decisions are not made about our successors just by us. It's made by us with the authority of our leadership involved in that. And I believe in, again, in practical terms, that's what Jesus was talking about. It's not just my decision. Yes, you guys are capable and you will be part of this but it's not my decision alone to decide who's going to succeed me. And so these are the the principles that we've 
you know, we've put into practice because I believe even though a lot of these uh, things are often looked at theologically as, you know, the way the Trinity works, to me, this helped me understand the Trinity a lot better when I looked at it in practical terms than, than when I looked at it sort of, I guess, just in theological terms, because a leader who's able to hand over but continue to help guide the next uh, generation, their, their successors, who are also doing the same thing with the next generation, uh, to me, that's a really important relationship. Uh, and I think it's critical. We've found it critical, especially when the next generation, they're not professionals. You know, they're people that have come out of crisis and conflict and they need to be guided and, and helped in their role. And that's, what, that's the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's our helper. He's our guide. He reminds us of the things that we've already learnt. He teaches us, um, but does not, in a sense, override our leadership. Yeah. He works through us. And so, again, these are really powerful principles that we learned together as we worked through this uh, in the field in some really difficult and hard places. So, Paul, really, Jesus had succession in mind right from the start, didn't he? Like, we're talking about the Trinity here, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Like, right from the start, he, he, he chose the 12 to, to train them up because he knew he, there would come a time when he would leave. And he knew he had a short period of time, three years, um, for doing that as well. But yet, the impact that those three years have had has been incredible. Yeah. Uh, you know, and his foresight, of course, is better than ours. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but absolutely. Um, and he said that time and time again to his disciples, that at least five times uh, it's recorded that I'm going, I'm not going to be here um, forever. I'm going to be gone. And in that passage, again, in Matthew chapter 20, you know, he says, we're going, I'm going to be going up to Jerusalem. We're going to go up together and I'm going to be handed over. Um, and so he was just, again, warning them and preparing them. And that is also a principle that is often not applied. And you, you know, you mentioned you've sat on boards and been involved in transitions. How often has this been communicated in a transparent way to everybody that needs to know that actually a succession or transitions being planned and the people that need to know even know about it sometimes, um, often this is kept under wraps. And so Jesus was very open and transparent about it because you'll note later in the passage where there's a bit of a dispute, which happened a few times about who was the greatest. It's interesting that, you know, the brothers tried to come to Jesus alone. Yes, he talked with them about it, but then he talked openly with the group about it so that it was all upfront, transparent, above board. We did that. And so in the case of East Timor, a lot of people even within our group of leaders said, you know, if you talk about this 
openly and publicly, we have a lot of em enemies in this country. And, you know, we had a parliamentary inquiry raised against us. Uh, we had investigations against us, including court cases. Uh, so there were a lot of people in the government, in some of the large church institutions um, who were not um, favorably um, thinking about us in any way, shape or form. And the, the concern was, if you talk about this, these people are going to find out. And I said, well, I said, we do need to be mindful about some things, but I said, my view is we need to be open and transparent. So all of the people that need to know about this find out in the right way, rather than find out from second or third hand information. And so what I did in, in a practical sense was I met with the leadership first, the top leadership, and we talked through that. Then we met with the next tier of leadership, the, the uh, successors that we were preparing. And then I talked to every single person in, in mass meetings uh, in our organization and church about our plans. Um, and to be honest, initially it went over like a lead balloon um, because there was very little faith from our foreign workers, understandably, no criticism of them in the capacity of our local indigenous successors. And even more so, the local indigenous successors were like, we can't do this. We're not, we're not qualified. We're not capable. And I said, well, this is the process that we're going to go through. Um, and by God's grace, this is what we're going to do. We don't have any other options, guys and gals. Uh, this, is, this is where we're at with this. And um, if you can think of another idea, please do so. Well, as I'm sitting listening to this, I'm thinking every, every leader has a, has a time limit on their leadership. So whether they're appointed to a church for a period of five years or they're appointed, you know, a CEO has a contract period, all those kind of things. And often, like I can remember in one situation on a board, um, we were transitioning out of pastor after 27 years of being in ministry. And we had, we had three years to go. <laughs> He'd set a deadline and we called in the denomination because the denomination was going to appoint his successor and three years out. And I said, okay, guys, we need to start a plan. And he said, well, I said, what's your plan? He said, whereas we're normally sitting here um, when a leader has fallen or something has gone wrong in the congregation, we've had to pull a pastor out and we're making a decision who's going to stand in next week, not who's going to stand in, in three years time. But, it's, but even CEOs who come into a new organization, knowing that they've got a five-year contract, they don't think about their succession. They think about how much I can earn during this period. Like, let's get blunt about the financial impacts and, and how I can better myself so I can get ready for the next leadership role I have, rather than for how do I build up the leaders in my organization moving forward. So we're going to really go on quite a journey over the next, I don't know, it could be 30, could be 40 podcasts. We don't know quite yet about unpacking this and seeing that change of focus about 
successes first, sacrificial succession. What, what's your hope over this time? My hope is that, um, you know, anyone who takes the time to listen to what we're sharing would be able to walk away and really think through this and how it applies to them and their leadership in their organisation. And my prayer would be is that they apply these principles in their lives and in their leaderships. It's interesting, um, one of the people who edited some of my early versions, um, she's an entrepreneur in her own right, um, but she's also a mum. And she said, you know what? She said, I know that this is sort of about leadership and sort of out there, I guess, in a sense, you know, in the field. But she said, so many of these principles actually apply to my family and bringing up our children because she said as parents we are ultimately preparing successors and we don't always certainly for me i I don't always do a good job at that because i haven't got that necessarily in mind and so that would be my hope is that it's applied personally first to leadership and any organizations that we work with second and then thirdly if we really believe in these principles and put them into practice that we would share them uh, with our non-christian friends and colleagues uh, especially in the business field i think because um, i think they're applicable yes oh look they are and and uh... I can care with you about family. You know, I think you've got six kids. Is that right, Paul? I do. I do. I've got four. My three eldest are working their way out the door very quickly in our home at the moment. And I'm very conscious that my role with them has changed from being a parent per se to being a coach uh, with them, you know, and, and moving forward. And and as I work through some of this stuff too, I'm thinking, uh, there's some stuff that I need to learn to apply in that family situation, but also in a business situation and a ministry situation as well. So, Paul, you've uh, you've got a little devotional called The First Will Be Last, which has 31 different uh, devotions in there. And really, that's, that's our heart, is to unpack those over this podcast series, uh, to go a bit deeper. At different times, we'll bring in somebody and we'll interview them uh, as well. Uh, but we'd love feedback from people too as we work through this um, to let us know. And if you've got any questions or things to reach out to us as well. Who knows where this journey is going to go, Paul, but unless we start the journey, we won't know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think the Chinese have a proverbs, you know, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've started today and I look forward to doing this journey with you over the however long it lasts, at least the next probably 30, 40 episodes in doing that. Thanks, Wes.